Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan, and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. And Chrissy. Hello. Who? Chrissy? Who's Chrissy? I don't know. <laughs> Chrissy before. I don't remember Welcome her either. Welcome back, Chrissy. Oh, thanks, Nathan. Apparently it was our fault she didn't come to the last one because we didn't tell her about it. But... <laughs> what? I'm not in charge of anything. I mean, I'm... Yeah, okay. Someone's got to be in charge, Nathan. Yes. Actually, I've read your biog, and you are. You are the driving force. Did I say that right? <laughs> That's right. And we obey. Driving force isn't actually the same thing as uh, being in charge of telling everyone where the, when the meetings are. So, we have one email today from our very good friend and regular correspondent, Mr. Happy Evil Slosh. And he's talking about the bus company ads, again, that we were criticised about last time. And he's criticising the criticism, or he's criticising us for accepting the criticism. I'm not quite sure which. I'll just read it, shall I? Yeah. Stephen, which was the guy that sent us the message, the bus company was supposedly allowing for the fact that an atheist ad would likely be vandalised, not that Christians would likely vandalise an atheist ad. The difference is subtle but important. Most vandalism of this nature is intended to provoke a reaction. I strongly suspect that the people that paint Flying Spaghetti Monster and Harry Potter slogans on churches are the same people who paint pro-God messages on atheist billboards. They don't really care about religion or atheism, they are just trying to piss people off. They're the same as internet trolls. So, that was the original message we had from Stephen, and we said, yes, he has a point, and we, um, to varying degrees backed off of our original statements. Happy Evil Slosh does not agree. Uh, he has a response to this because he doesn't think it's right. Firstly, the bus company was presumably allowing for the fact that an atheist ad would be vandalised more than a Christian one, otherwise they'd be charging Christians the same amount no matter what the base level of vandalism is. Secondly, of the vandalism trolls he mentions, he gives us no reason to believe that they would proportion the vandalism more to atheist ads. Without evidence to that effect, it seems reasonable to assume that the amount of vandalism done would be proportional to the amount of advertising regardless of message. Maybe you could justify it by saying the atheist ads have more public scrutiny and thus get a bigger reaction, but I'd want to see some evidence before buying into that particular post hoc justification. In particular, have other ad campaigns under public scrutiny also been charged the extra? Thirdly, we know that Christians vandalise other Christian advertising thanks to the Anglican ads that were vandalised about a year ago, the God was a hard act to follow ones. Why would we suspect that Christians wouldn't vandalise atheist ads as well? Are there likely to be non-Christians vandalising the ads for a reaction? Sure but it doesn't follow that Christians won't also vandalise them on top of the background rate of vandalism. Although at the end of the day, I actually think the bus company just didn't want to run the ads and was coming up with excuses. And I know what you were about to say, Craig. Um, he's doing the same thing we did and assuming that it was the Christians that vandalised the, the, Christian the Christian ads. And it still could have been random trolls just spray painting Christians don't vandalize ads people do <laughs> yeah so it was it's, it was a bible verse that was painted wasn't it um so okay we're all sorry again for flip-flopping 
and we're going to flip-flop to prove our point. One thing I wonder though is whether the, whether the bus company does and should charge a premium for advertising that's likely to be controversial. I think that's a different issue. I think whether they're justified or not is secondary in this case to the argument that it is the Christians that are doing the vandalising. And Happy Evil Slosh is saying that it's just as likely that it's Christians as it is anything else. Which, if you think about it, is kind of all, it's almost the same as what Stephen was saying, that it's just as likely to be non-Christians vandalising the atheist ads. So I think everybody's right, and everyone gets a gold star. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a certificate of participation. <laughs> I'm pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> Can we close the subject now? Yeah, so I was, yes, that is done. We're not talking about atheists. Well, unless it comes up in the news again. Thank you, Happy Evil Slosh, for your comments. We will take them on board with all due consideration. Okay, so nothing happening on the notice board, taking us to the news. And the first news item is a uh, clip that's been going viral on YouTube, apparently. I haven't seen it myself, but uh, I have just watched it, and it's quite funny. What's the definition of viral? Oh, don't even. We're not going to go on a sidetrack, are we? Quarter of a million. I don't know. How do you define viral? Mimics the actions of a biological virus in replicating at a, at a fast rate. But how do you measure that? And dis- oh, right. I don't know. A large number of hits in a short amount of time. Perhaps an exp- exponential growth in hits. That's not the point, though. <laughs> the point is the video is quite popular. Yeah, and it's uh, quite funny. How do you find popular? <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me come over there. Seriously. So what we'll do is we're going to play that clip for you now, or a clip of the clip, because it's like three minutes, and we just want to play the important bit. And we'll play that for you now. So the guy's talking about heaven and how great heaven is, and someone has mentioned something about having more than one wife, possibly. What I am here to talk about is that <laughs> heaven is real. We yeah. believe heaven's real. And by the way, we spoke about abortion. I just want to say that theologically, I believe that every aborted child is in heaven. Right. So we would be doing them a favour by aborting them then? No, I'm not saying that. No. I mean, really, if you okay. want to call that, have that your own argument. Trivial, that's a very trivial response to a very serious that's issue. That's an absolute and I think, factual response to what you're no, saying. No, if that's no, what no, you're it's not, saying. not saying that. No, God is a God of the defenceless. Uh, let me ask He's you, uh, what weak. do you think about this, this vision of, of, of uh, heaven that Suleiman has? I mean, it sounds like it was kind of constructed a little bit, if I may say so, by men. Well, yeah, it's interesting that every man is going to have two wives. That means there have to be twice as many women who believe this as there are men. Otherwise, there won't be enough to go round, or we'll all have to marry more than one, or something like this. It's not quite clear. But what is interesting here... What is interesting here, actually, is that we've got people from different faiths and, and, the, and who all believe in some kind of heaven in a different sense. And, but every single one of them believes in this heaven on the basis of faith. And faith, by definition, is believing in things without evidence. And uh, personally, I don't do that because I'm not an idiot. Oh, whoa! Ouch! Ouch! Whoa! Ouch! Ouch! Jenny! 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 And then there was some more discussion about uh, how wrong she was and how offended everybody was. So she by called that. people who believe without evidence idiots. Idiot. Yes. Um, I don't see any problem with that. That seems perfectly justified to me. Anyway, so the lady in question is Kate Smithwaite, who's a, a London-based stand-up comic. Um, and feminist and does a lot of radio stuff and the program that she was on was a um, BBC One so this is the one of the main channels in the UK um, program called The Big Questions and this is a, a, a series which 
as um, shown on Monday, uh, sorry, on Sunday mornings, and as um, a series of moral, ethical, and religious debates. So that was just one of the debates they were having. And um, I think I've seen other clips of that show before. It's, um, it's always quite interesting. Hmm. She's got some great comments. In the actual blog post, someone has, has said, if this, I'm assuming that word is cunt, but it's spelled with a K. If this trash-talking cunt had her fucking tongue ripped out of her suckhole, <laughs> I bet the very first words to leave her face would be, oh my God. And it's just occurred to me just reading it through on one, one reading, though, that she's just had her tongue ripped out. So how's she going to say, oh my God? That's right. No, no one else thought that was funny. Well, is it possible to say that without using your tongue? Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Good god. No, you can't get the D out, but I'm um, sure. Well, and someone else says you're a woman, right? Therefore, you're an idiot. So. Yeah. Ah, yes. Yes, I saw that. Very good. All right. So the misogynistic. Oh, she needs to be gang reaped. Reaped. I like the reaped. Yeah. Yes, I can totally see that. Uh, anyway. Right. Well, awesome. We'll put a link up. Go and listen to the uh, whole thing. Tell us what you think. But it probably doesn't do to call people idiots. No, I don't see why not. I don't like name-calling, though. I never like name-calling. I mean, there's certainly plenty of people out there that are being nice about it. There's no reason one person can't get up and say, look, you believe in things with no evidence, then you're an idiot. Sometimes you just have to say The other point that she makes, so on the clip they have her name and then they say that she's with the National um, Secular Society. And the point she makes is that she is a member, but she's by no means a spokesperson. So oh, I think right. she felt that they were sort of misleading, you know, like she's she's standing up there and she's calling them millions, and that's that's her point of view that they're idiots. But that's not necessarily the National Secular Society. Speaks for viewpoint. herself. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's enough for that. Moving on. Well, here's a shocker. <laughs> Apparently, mobile phones don't cause cancer. New study, Susie. There's actually an updated um, uh, report of a study that's been going on in Denmark. So a big study um, of Danes aged over 30 um, who have been um, subscribers or non-subscribers to mobile phones before 1995. And their outcomes in terms of cancer and things have been monitored over this time. So they have got um, over 350,000 subscription holders who've been followed up from 1990 to 2007 um, and essentially there is no more cancer in the people who are mobile phone users than the ones who aren't so that's just yeah there you go little evidence for um, or no increased risk of tumours of the central nervous system right well okay it's closed then we're not going to hear anything more about that (laughs) (laughs) what do you think is driving the people who um who want to claim a link between phones and cancer? I think that's a, a very profound question that we don't have time to answer, to be honest. He's got a lot of them today, hasn't he? Um, Moving right along. What did you have for breakfast, Craig? It's supposed <laughs> to be brain food. <laughs> um, okay, the next article is... This is going to be another Susie-dominated episode, I think, this one. Well, I do try and have some input, but I get shut down. <laughs> <laughs> Only because you're being a dick. That was a serious question. Which we don't have time to answer. That's all I said. Okay, if anyone knows why people are so scared of cell phones and want to link them to cancer, write in and let us know and we'll talk about it next time. Feel better now? We'll let Craig talk about it. Craig can talk about it. 
Oh, he's still sulking. Look at him. Oh, Craig. Have a drink. <laughs> Bats? Question mark. I don't even know what this article is. Okay. They've so discovered a new Ebola-like virus. Yeah, so does everybody know what Ebola is? Ebola is the yeah. flesh-eating disease, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah, so Ebola is just one of the most amazing viruses. It's just so cool. It's got a really high mortality rate, so essentially wow, it kills that's awesome. most people. No, it does. It kills most it's people that it infects. And you kind of liquefy and then sort of explode. So you kind of bleed that out of cool. every orifice. I mean, that is pretty cool. Can I ask a quick question and tell me if this is going to take too long as well? <laughs> Come on, Craig. Why do viruses kill their hosts? Wouldn't it make more sense to keep the host alive? So not all of them do. Okay. And it all depends. It's, it's quite complicated. Oh, well, don't worry about it. It's too long. Well, it's all to do with <laughs> transmission. So, and, and if it's really easy to get to the next host, and one of the ways you do that is by kind of Exploding. Explode and bleed all over each other. Then that's a good that's a good thing to do. Um, so Ebola is one of my favourite viruses. And when I saw this uh, paper, which reported um, finding an Ebola-like virus in Spain, so to go back slightly, so Ebola and their related viruses, really cool, really quite scary, um, mostly found in Africa. And in fact, in Africa, what tends to happen is they sort of explode in little populations, kill loads and loads of people, and then they kind of disappear again. Um, so they clearly have a reservoir that, that has, does, they don't really know what the reservoir is, and they sort of pop out of the jungle, um, kill some people, and then sort of disappear again. And lots of uh, animals have been implicated, so the people have been looking, um, so they, they kill non-human primates too. Um, so they... Um, so a lot of the transmission comes from maybe an, an infected monkey will then infect a person. But the monkeys are as badly affected as people are. So where do the monkeys get it from? So they've kind of looked at insects and all sorts of things. And, and it's all been a bit kind of, oh, we're not really sure where, they, where these viruses hide. So they clearly have a niche that they live in that they don't kill that host, right? Um, and one of the things that has been put forward is maybe bats. So in Africa... Species, certain species of bats have been found that have um, that you can infect with Ebola, and they just carry it asymptomatically, so they don't show any signs of disease, but they shed that virus, and so that virus could then infect people or monkeys, or whatever. So the finding that there was an Ebola-like virus in bats in Spain, I was like, whoa, that's really quite terrifying, like because these things haven't really been found outside of Africa. It turns out that. I got slightly less excited when I realised that this was um, related to some dead bats that they found in 2002. So now I've been thinking, oh, okay, so where have they been since then? But anyway, so what happened was there was um, a really... Uh, a, a couple of these sort of explosive outbreaks of disease. So essentially this, Ebo this is Ebola-like viruses doing what these viruses do. So they had these massive deaths in colonies of bats. Within 10 days, whole colonies were wiped out. Um, and when they did they explode, the, Susie? I don't know. They didn't say in their paper. It was all a bit technical. Um, but they did say that they looked at carcasses of dead bats, and then they also looked at live, healthy bats over a series of series of years, and only ever found this virus, um, which they've now named after the cave that in Spain where they where the bats live, um, in the dead bats and not the healthy bats. So clearly, the bats are not a are not a normal host for it, and it's come from somewhere else and I'm left thinking oh my god there's a scary virus in Spain and where did it come from and where's it been since 2002 and is it going to come back and is it going to jump and presumably to someone else prior prior to 2002 yeah it, it must have been, been hibernating been, somewhere or or it's got it's, it has a niche presumably sure. or I don't know what do bats do, do bats bats don't migrate do they yeah I just thought that was really cool because I like 
I like those viruses. And and I guess it's sort of Halloweeny, you know, the whole um, rage virus in 28 Days Later, um, that kind of thing, these sort of viruses that and come bats. out here. Yeah, you know, bats. Predators scaring insects to death. Assuming that's you again, Susie? <laughs> that is me. This, so this was another kind of interesting thing that I just saw, which again felt sort of Halloweeny. Um, so this is a, a report from some Canadian researchers who were um, growing dragonflies in um, tanks next to tanks of fish that were their predators. And what they found was that, e that the presence of the predator, even though the predator could not attack the fish in any way, attack the dragonfly in any way, led to essentially those dragonflies being scared to death. So the more dragonflies didn't survive in those tanks than ones that didn't have a fish near them. Mm. And was that specifically what they were looking for or was that a, an accident? I think they were looking at stress responses. So I think they were looking they were looking at stress responses and wanting to know so how stressed do insects get and was did you need to did, did the, I guess would the insects um, would just the presence of the predator rather than actually the predator being able to attack them have a difference and they found that actually they scared the um these non-lethal predators actually scared the bejeebas out of them. Yeah, so again, it was just a sort of, it felt Halloween-y to me. How quickly did they die? I mean, it was it's not like the traditional being scared to death as in a, you suddenly get a fright and you you fall over and, and you're dead, versus um, ongoing like, stress, the, ongoing yeah, stress yeah, in yeah. their environment okay, meant okay, that they um, died in three weeks instead of six weeks or something. I think one of the things they looked at was whether they, um, after they'd, um, so whether they'd, formed their pupa and then metamorphosized so and they found that a lot of them didn't do that so it was done over um august september october so done over two months well here's something we increasingly find that stress brings a greater risk of death presumably from things such as infections that normally wouldn't kill them so presumably it is it's, a, it's an over time no no it was it was less than that it, it was i mean they're not going to be in these um in these cages, they're not going to be exposed to all those things. I think it was even more fundamental than that. Well, I have a question. How does a stress response like that evolve? Because that's not going to benefit the organism in any way to become so stressed that you die. Sort of thinking in terms of an arms race where the fish gets more scary and in response, <laughs> the, the dragonfly becomes more scared yes. and more stressful. How is that a bonus? How does that? But the majority of the time, in in actually when these when this dragonfly has been developing, the the fish that it's scared of are actually able to get to it versus being in a separate environment. That okay, hang on, hang on. So the devil is in the detail. So they did say the potential influence of parasites was not examined in our present study. The larvae were collected from natural habitats and so they could have had parasites in them. So they they just they didn't actually look at that. I thought they would have bred them up for these experiments, but obviously they don't breed. So you're saying one possible answer one is possible the parasite answer. that's causing them to die instead of just stress per se. Yeah. Okay. Or the stress would lead to, as you're right, the sort of Okay. Yeah, but they also did say um, that there there have been other studies that have shown reduced activity and foraging are common responses to predator cues. So, um, and there has been a decline in activity observed 
and another study where where they weren't where. Um, so essentially, without foraging and getting food, they might yeah, become die. Yeah, yeah, weakened and die. Right. That's probably enough about that. Then we. It is interesting. Though. It is. Happy Halloween, everybody. Boo. <laughs> okay, and something getting just a little bit more onto actual scepticism instead of just theme holiday themed articles. <laughs> is a rhino that's been declared extinct. It's a little bit sad, isn't it? Is it sad? I haven't read it yet. Is it sad? Of course. We don't want anything going extinct. Well, except maybe viruses. Except Susie. This is the Javan rhino, and they haven't been declared extinct completely. They're just now extinct in Vietnam. So the last known one. But that doesn't mean there are many left, because there aren't many left um, outside of Vietnam. I guess what is interesting about this, from a sceptical point of view, is the fact that what's driving the extinction of most of these kinds of species is um, traditional Chinese medicine. So they're being killed for their horns, and other animals are being killed for other things, um, and you know, despite the fact that there's no medicinal properties in rhino horn or in these um, traditional medicines. Uh, we're leading to the extinction of species, and as you're saying, I mean the the knock-on effects of that are quite substantial, really. An interesting point that could be made here, rather ironically, if it's irony, it might not be. If the purveyors of traditional Chinese medicine were actually slightly less ethical, then the <laughs> is rhino. That possible? This is my point. <laughs> what they could be doing is offering. Any, any sort of powdered oh, anything and yes. saying, this is powdered rhino horn. And no one would know, and it would work exactly the same. But they obviously have this level of, of ethical... Integrity. Thank you, integrity, that uh, they actually want to offer the real ingredient. Hmm. Well, they, they believe that their stuff works. They do believe they that They need works, to have the real stuff. ingredient, yeah. and so they will go out and get it. So I see a gap in the market. So why don't we just start our own... Make it cheaper. Yes, without any of the ingredients. Push all the real rhino horn yeah. out of the market. Absolutely. And we'd be even more successful because we Sorted. can actually deliberately use psychological tricks to make it more yes. effective. Put it in, in red packaging. Yeah. And we'll make, make, it, make it, no, it expensive. Make it really, really expensive. Brand name and really expensive. Oh. We'll market it with a viral video. Yeah. On YouTube. Let's do that. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. The... <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the completely unnecessary sceptical podcast is starting a uh, business venture. <laughs> oh, I might say we weren't going to endorse the use of um, rhino horns, and that's what you were supposed to Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine. No, we don't. No, killing rhinos is stupid. Unless you can but find one that tastes DNA. nice, I suppose. You can. All right, good. So we're happy with that. Not happy, obviously, but we're um, finished. Okay, so cold fusion rears its head as ECAT research promises to change the world. Now this is a complicated one just because I've only read a couple of articles about it so far. Um, I'll give you the intro to the article. Is Andrea Rossi the messiah or just a very naughty boy? Rossi, an Italian inventor, claims to have come up with the holy grail of power generation, an energy catalyzer, or ECAT, which produces limitless energy. He has already carried out laboratory demonstrations in front of scientists and the Italian media. And in October, he plans to unveil a one-megawatt power plant in the U.S. If it works, the ECAT is the biggest thing since atomic power, bringing an inexhaustible supply of cheap energy. 
and there's there's actually videos on YouTube of supposed demonstrations of this. I watched the video and it is so long-winded. He goes through and he shows all the equipment. He's supposedly using around about 700 watts of power to power this device and it's supposedly producing um, something like 12 kilowatts of power as output. But when you actually look at the video, the demonstration of it doesn't seem very impressive. It, it All it was producing was some steam out the other end and it didn't seem to be in any high pressure or anything and so t from looking at the video myself I wasn't convinced that anything magical was actually happening here um, but obviously you'd think it would be simple to demonstrate that mm. that, that here here's the here's the power and here I've got this machine and here is yes. the measured heating or steam that's being produced and let's measure the energy in that I found the article that I was looking for because since I read the original article, it has had its first official test, rather no, not its first test, a proper official test in the States. And the article says, against all the odds, Andrea Rossi's ECAT cold fusion power plant passed its biggest test yesterday, producing an average of 470 kilowatts for more than five hours. And this is a suspicious um, comment here. A technical glitch prevented it from achieving a megawatt as, it, as originally planned. The demonstration was monitored closely by engineers from Rossi's mysterious US customer, which was evidently satisfied and has paid up. Well, it doesn't really matter how much it produces, as long as it produces more, more than, than the what's energy being input. Put in. Yes. Now, cold fusion, for those of you who don't know what cold fusion is, Fusion is what happens in the sun, where hydrogen and hydrogen fuse together to make... Helium. Helium. Mm -hmm. And a huge amount of energy is released. And energy is released in the meantime. Cold fusion is the idea that you can do that without needing a huge gravitational force or an intense amount of energy. Yes, because you need a huge amount of energy in order to push the hydrogen atoms close enough to fuse. And so you normally need a huge amount of heat or extreme gravitational to overcome the, the overcome strong, the nuclear, strong force. nuclear forces, keeping yeah. them apart normally, yes. The so, the, so back in 1989, Pons and Fleischmann came up with this thing where supposedly they were able to do it at room temperature. Using equipment that you could find in a high school lab. Um, and they used palladium as some sort of catalyst, and it produced neutrinos. They measured neutrinos coming out of it. Um, there was... Skepticism, obviously, as uh, in the first instance, and immediately everybody tried to replicate the results, and no one did. One of the things that they did, which is cited as an example of what you shouldn't do, is that they went straight to the media instead of waiting for the journals and peer review and so forth. So, yes, that happened in 1989, and people don't really talk about cold fusion anymore. But it turns out that people are still trying to achieve cold fusion, only that nowadays they sort of refer to it with code words. There your usual um, nutcases working in... Um... No, well, there's, there's the nutcases that, are, that, are, that will refer to it as cold fusion. I'm not, I can't find the specific wording that they mention, but um, DARPA is working on cold fusion, um, referring to it as something else. And uh, Bango's The Theory, they had an episode where they visited a, a fusion reactor that's yes, being but, built but that and was, tested. that was actually a proper... High temperature fusion. 
Um, so there are people that are working on fusion and even people that are working on cold fusion. Um, the crackpots are absolutely convinced that it's possible. And I think it's probably fair to say that most scientists and skeptics uh, think that it's probably not. But here we go. He's passed a test. His, whatever it is that he's built has been tested, has produced power. That's all we know about it. So, but he's not revealing any details of the actual. He's not. Uh, so that's one of the things he's been criticised, and he does no one uh, this sort of mysterious process that he refuses to explain. Yeah, plenty of mysteries remain, but the game just got a lot more interesting. It would be good if it was real. Oh, it'd be great if it was real. I mean, that's one of the things in the main article. Um, they were talking about what would happen if cold fusion became a possibility, and with cheap energy literally everything else becomes cheaper because everything relies somehow on energy, transporting, producing, manufacturing. Well, look at what's happened with the gas, the Maui gas. Yes, I haven't no. been following that, but have prices gone up, have they? Well, no. No, there's been a huge disruption of just supply. We can't get... <laughs> Is that why there's no Announce garlic bread in the supermarket? Yes. That's why Burger Fuel is closed. Oh, Burger, Burger King is closed. You can't get this, you can't get that. Yeah. Yes, I noticed that, but okay. <laughs> the point I was trying to make is that... But it's energy, that's yes, what I put it. Yes, it is. One of the staples of your diet is closed because... Well, I, know, I saw it was closed and I saw it was because of a gas leak, but... There's been a major... Yeah, yeah I have heard of the gas leak. Okay. I'm not quite that out of touch. But yes, yeah, so if, if it becomes cheaper to manufacture stuff, it becomes cheaper to transport it, it becomes cheaper to buy it, which we'll means you don't need to earn as much money. You what? We'll be able to give our we podcast could. away for free. You, you people could be receiving this for free um, instead of having to pay for it. So that means people's work habits can change. You can work less, earn less. Oh, and still, no, I don't like that, earn less. Or you can buy more <laughs> with the same amount of money, obviously. Oh, that's okay. So people will be better off. So... Um, anyway, you slice well, it. We can make a, spaceships that don't need chemical. We can. We can make spaceships. And with spaceships, you could harvest hydrogen from Jupiter, which would be another fuel source. It would be quite cheap. Well, you clean. wouldn't need it if you had cold fusion. Well, you still put something <laughs> in it. So oh, you put you hydrogen too. in it, you see. So there we go. That's all we wanted to say about that. Cold fusion. Wouldn't so maybe nice? next month we'll be able to report that we'll the whole see. energy economy has changed. Indeed. Which everyone will probably know about, but... Okay, so the next article. Aromatherapy produces harmful indoor air pollutants. Susie. Spas that offer massage therapy using fragrant essential oils, called aromatherapy, may have elevated levels of potentially harmful indoor air pollutants, such as volatile organic compounds and ultrafine particles. So this is a a paper published um, in the journal Environmental Engineering Science by some uh, researchers in Taiwan who looked at the um, secondary organic aerosols formed by various fragrant and Chinese herbal essential oils. Um, And then they also sampled the air from some spas that used essential oils and showed that there were elevated levels of these things and also a significant increase in ultrafine particles. And they raised the point that um, spas need to maybe be careful about ventilation. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic when you're thinking about aromatherapy. Yes. So, <laughs> on one hand, you want the, the room to be filled with the scent of lavender, but on the other hand, you've got to pump fresh air in so you don't get pollution. Now, it's worth noting as well that uh, aromatherapy isn't necessarily completely bollocks. There may be some physiological effects 
from. At least it has active ingredients. There is some sort of you know response with a with a olfactory reception and so forth. So there's possibly. Well, that's interesting anyway. So, so Even that it was bashing a spa. So our recommendation is not to use aromatherapy then. Or if you do, make sure the room is well ventilated. Yeah. <laughs> Take your own, own breathing apparatus. <laughs> okay, and measuring dreams. Susie. This one, um, I, I liked it because we seem to, have, for two reasons. So we seem to be doing a bit of functional MRI every month at the moment. So I thought, why not do a bit more functional MRI? You never have too much functional MRI. And this is also about lucid dreaming. That, that was dreaming. the one last month about the female yes. orgasm. Yes. Orgasm. So what these uh, guys did was they put um, people into functional MRI machines and they used uh, people who were capable of lucid dreaming. Um, so does anybody want to tell any, our audience what lucid dreaming is for those lucid who Lucid dreaming... Know? is where you are aware that you are dreaming and you're able to take control of the dream. And Rebecca Watson can do it, because I remember that episode. But we had that girl at the Skeptics Night. Remember she spoke about it? Lucid yeah, dreaming. Exactly. <laughs> Giggling about. <laughs> do you remember her? It was controversial. It was we remember controversial. it well. Yes. <laughs> I don't. Oh, you weren't there, Nathan. Wasn't I? We can't that one. There was a lady who came to us to talk about lucid dreaming and a lot of us in the audience had never heard of it and frankly she sounded like she was talking a load of codswallop and so there were a couple of um, rather robust discussions. argumentative <laughs> discussions but frankly we obviously terrified her and she never never came been back. back. I've never seen and her I, again. And, I, and I'm, I feel a bit bad about this, but frankly, she started by saying she was going to give us the science behind lucid dreaming and then promptly didn't and was telling us all about... Her sexual how, life. Her sec, you know, how you could then have sex with anyone you want. And then she started talking about this device you can put on your head or something that tells you when you're lucid dreaming. Or It was, it was very mm. funny. It and was. sounded like a load of bollocks. Mm. It turns out there is there, lucid dreaming is is a real, real thing. thing. And like the week yeah. after she talked to us, there was a big article in New Scientist and then there was people, you know, Rebecca Watson talking about it. It was very funny. But anyway. Yes, but we were mainly objecting to her lack of objective evidence for yes, it rather than absolutely. the fact that it was Yes, wasn't but I don't think she realised that because she hasn't been back to see us since. So I think she thought we were being a bit crap. She's probably anyway. still dreaming. Yeah, well, that's, you know. Well, she's lucid dreaming that she's coming to our meeting. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, you don't need to come to the meeting. No, it's no, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and on so top of being at the meeting, you can also have sex with people. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that happens there. What else would make skeptics in the pub? <laughs> so, um, this was purely a paper showing um, that people who were lucid dreamers, they scanned them um, doing actions in uh, while they were lucid dreaming, and then also scanned them, so thinking about doing those actions, and then scanned them doing those actions. Um, scanned them doing them actions? Or, yeah, doing them actions. And then um, found that essentially the same kind of similar areas um, uh, lit up. So it was kind of uh, intriguing. So um, I wonder, though, whether they were actually able to know in real time when they were doing the scanning as to what the actions actually were or whether they had to report it later after they'd woken up from their lucid dream. No, it does dream. say that. Lucid dreamers were asked to become aware of their dream while in the scanner and to report this state to the researchers by eye movements... They were then asked to voluntarily dream that they were repeatedly clenching first their right fist and then their left one for 10 seconds. But they didn't so the do eye it. eye signal, they did it and they did it and then they did it. But they didn't do actually do it. They, they, no, they didn't. They no, 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 in the dream. In the dream they did. Only in the dream, yeah. yes. So, um, 
That's very exciting. Mm. But it's not really surprising, though, that the that the, the areas of the brain that are involved with doing the action are the ones that are actually doing it in your dream as well. That seems quite reasonable. What is quite exciting is the next article. Scientists use brain imaging to reveal the movies in our mind. Imagine tapping into the mind of a coma patient or watching one's own dream on YouTube. With a cutting-edge blend of brain imaging and computer simulation, scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, are bringing these futuristic scenarios within reach. Using functional MRI and com computational models, researchers have succeeded in decoding and reconstructing people's dynamic visual experiences. In this case, watching Hollywood movie trailers. And to get an idea of how completely awesome this is, you've got to have a look at the article. And there's a clip, <laughs> it looks like the Pink Panther, is that um, Clouseau from the Pink it does, Panther? Yeah. Um, by played by Steve Martin. And next to it is the image that they've reconstructed using the computer. And it's very, very clearly a person with a black shirt and something hanging around their neck. And if you were objectively judging, did did that picture represent that picture? I think you'd have to say that was very, very close. But no hat. hat, though. No hat. Oh, yes, not yes. no hat. <laughs> but also, if you were... To, I mean, I've watched the movie, and I think if you covered up the presented clip and you had to figure out what was going on from looking at the just the reconstructed yeah. clip, you'd have a much tougher time without knowing in advance what you're actually meant to be looking at. Yes. But the bigger problem with this is there's no way that they're going to actually reconstruct people's dreams with this. This is because it's it's taking the, the it's looking at the activity of the brain from the visual input that and and isn't it something like 50% of your brain is actually used for processing visual um, activity? That's probably And, and close. so what I'm saying is that it's unlikely that you're going to be able to say, I want to replay this dream I had last night and have it come out on your computer monitor. Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. One of your first point is that if you were just watching the reconstructed clip, sure, you wouldn't say that's Steve Martin playing an Inspector Clouseau from the Pink no, Panther. No. But, but it's pretty goddamn close, yes. considering the technology that's If you involved. look later on in the clip at the, at the elephants that are walking across, there's no way you would look from the reconstructed clip to realise that no, those are still, still elephants walking across you're the You're still missing the point. This is brand new technology. It's oh, not I, I at know. the point now where you would look at the clip and know what it was. What I'm saying is it's pretty impressive that they're able to get that level oh, of detail. I, I, yes, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not dissing the technology at all, but I just think there's a lot of confirmation bias in there and, and actually seeing, seeing what you are seeing because you know what you're meant to be seeing. I wouldn't go quite so, so far as to say periodolia. I'm just impressed that there's a vaguely person-like shape. Your second point, though, that what could be happening is simply the visual signal that's being processed being detected if they were simply imagining a picture would you get the same well they are talking about reconstructing people's dynamic visual experiences and to yeah. me that means that they're taking what what's coming in through the it's eyes and, it's and able to predict with overwhelming ac accuracy which picture the subject was looking at so it's not yet at the point where it's just doing your imagination but I can certainly see how, given enough time and money and research, that this could be advanced.
to the point where you could maybe get some sort so of a picture from an imagination. Website, they have a fact. Oh yes. Could you give a simple outline of the experiment? The goal of the experiment was to design a process for decoding dynamic natural visual experiences from human visual cortex. Um, more specifically, we sought to use brain activity measurements to reconstruct natural movies seen by an observer. Why is this important? Um, it's important to vision scientists and other neuroscientists. <laughs> Um, an important step in the development of brain reading technologies that could someday be useful to society. That's great, this is all hand waving. <laughs> um, could, previous brain reading approaches could only decode static information. Most of our visual experience is dynamic, and these dynamics are often the most compelling aspect of visual experience. So they really are talking about visual stuff. Ah, this is interesting. We ran three subjects for the experiments in this paper, all co authors. Three subjects isn't very much. No, so let's experiment on ourselves. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool technology what they've been able to achieve. That's all I wanted to say. And if it gets better, then that's awesome too. So you just want to be able to record your wet dreams, basically, yeah, and play yeah. them back later. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't and you better just be watching porn in the first place? <laughs> Did you take that long to work that out? That's, that's what he wanted. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so moving on. Getting close to the end now. <laughs> Hang in there. Yeah, bear with us, you can go home soon. Uh, brain movies. In fact, that is the end of the news. And we have three Woo Zealand articles. Craig, you want to tell us about the Power Panda, which sounds cute and adorable. Okay, so what the Power Panda is, well, how this all started was that... Um, you know those daily deal sites that sell you things um, that you can buy at a discounted price for a day. But you don't want them. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean anything. Exactly. But oh, they we do. can only buy it today. We have to buy it. They Sometimes do. it's cool stuff. They do seem to have a lot of woo on there. So actually, the, I tell you what, the best one was was um, there was one there was one about Ken Ring. It was like you could buy it was April Fools and you could buy Ken Ring's latest lecture tour or something for a hundred bucks. Carry on. Anyway, so. One of the things that I saw on one of these sites, which happened to be yazoom.co.nz, was a um, device called um, the Power Panda. And uh, so this was advertised as a way to save money on your power bill. And, um, and the, what, they, what they are claiming is that you can save um, upwards, up to 20% on your power bill. Now, to me, this sounds like, this sounds like a scam, so I investigated it a little. And the, the technology, technology in scare quotes behind it, is actually a thing called power factor correction. So, to get technical, <laughs> when you when you plug something into the um, the the mains and and turn it on and it draws power, then the the amount of power that it uses. The, the number of watts that it uses depends upon its power factor and depending upon the type of load whether it's a resistive load or an inductive load or capacitive load then the the voltage the voltage and the current waveforms can be in sync or out of sync right and if you are running an inductive load like a motor then what tends to happen is that the current lags behind the voltage and if you were to measure the, the, the voltage and the current 
on two meters and multiply them together using the um, using the formula for for calculating power, then you would find out that you were supposedly using more power than the motor was actually using. So this is a thing called power factor. So you might have a you might have a say your fridge might have a power factor of say 0.5, which means that even though it might only be uh, rated at 500 watts, it would appear that you were using a thousand watts of electricity. And that's an appearance. So yes, that's the power no, company charging you slightly more than they should. Well, no, they don't actually charge you any more, because, and this is where the scam is. It's because the power that you get charged for is only the real power. So if you've got a device that's using 500 watts of power, even though if you looked at it on a meter, the apparent power might be 1,000 watts, you're actually only being charged for 500 watts. So what happens is that these, these devices supposedly correct your power factor and bring it back into its supposed ideal resistive load of one, and supposedly then you are saving money because you... you if you looked at it on a meter, it would look like that you were actually using the power that the device is actually using rather than, than more power. The, the problem with this, of course, is that um, in a residential situation, you are only charged for real power that you use, so you can't possibly save any money by having your power factor corrected. Now, in an industrial situation, in sort of a large factory, it is important because um, although you're not being charged for any more power, if you have bad power factor, then the power company actually charges you more money because they have to essentially have higher, uh, thicker lines to carry the power to, to you because of, the, because of this difference in voltage and current. So basically the way the scam works is if you were to measure your power and then put the device on and then measure it afterwards. It would look it like would look you were like using, using less. power, yes. Yeah. So anyway, there are lots of these devices around that people have built that actually don't save people any money, but you can go and buy one of these devices and have it fitted into your into your house and they cost anywhere. Well, there are some devices you can get that you can actually just plug into a power socket that supposedly corrects the power factor for your whole house. Right. Or you can get these ones that are installed into your switchboard that, that, that do it. Um, and this particular deal was, I think, something like five hundred dollars. Um, yeah, I think it was. They were selling for four four hundred ninety-seven dollars, and the normal price was fourteen hundred ninety-seven dollars. So a it's a fairly <laughs> it's a fairly substantial amount of money in order to actually not save any money. So um, anyway, I went and had a look on the website, and I and I put in a few um, questions on the Yazoom site about this and and uh, and then the questions were removed later in the day oh, really? <laughs> because they were obviously awkward questions um, and and so I got an email from the Yazoom people saying sorry but our site is used only for asking questions about her products and not not for discussing whether or not it works so um, yeah so that didn't go far very far but anyway I I'm actually rang up the 0800 number to talk to the talk to them to ask them how this thing worked. Is that Yazoom uh, or the company? The company, yeah. yes. So I actually talked to the guy who developed the device. And, uh, Small company then. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, I mean, he sounded he sounded pretty genuine. So I think he was um, is just deluded and. So he's discovered this 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 phenomenon yeah, of the supposedly. Actual, he thinks that that's working. They actually do, they do they do have this other. Um, 
if you actually go to the website if you look up power panda there's um there's all the normal red red flags of yeah it is it is there's all the normal red flags of a pseudoscience thing about having testimonials from people about how wonderful the product is and how much money it saved them and so on um, but there's actually a lot of pretty good um, debunking on the internet about these kinds of devices. The first thing you see on the site is a testimonial yeah. from a qualified electrician. Yeah. After having my Power Panda installed, the results I got were staggering. Unbelievably, it helped us achieve an amazing 50% reduction on our previous month's bill. The irony of this whole ordeal is that because I'm an electrician, I thought I knew it all. The Power Panda has certainly opened my eyes. He's actually selling two different devices. One of the other devices they're selling is this thing which controls your electric hot water heating. Oh, yes. And it supposedly does this by allowing you to have a timer to program during the day what times you want your electricity Switched to on. switch on to heat the hot water. Yeah. So you could, in theory, say, well, I'm only going to have a shower in the morning. And yeah, so I only I'm going to work all day so you can switch the yes. heater off. So, so at, the, at the moment, there's some possible potential savings there. That, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, that, I don't think that's true, that's correct. Because no, if you switch so it off, it's going to cool down. And then and when it you switch it back on again, more time it's a lot of energy to, to bring up, it yeah. back up to level. Yes. Whereas maintaining its level, my best argument for that is if it was more efficient to switch it off, then it would already do that. That would be built in. Can right. I ask a quick question? So you said on the website that was promoting this that there was a thousand dollars off if you bought it that day. Mm. How oh, much so did you say it was? Well, it was fourteen hundred ninety-seven down to four ninety-seven right. or something. But if you go to Power Panda's website, they are selling it for four hundred ninety-seven dollars. Well, okay. So no, well, don't take me as um, definite on that because no, I may have the numbers wrong. If you installed this device and your power bills went down, your power bills fluctuate from month to month. Sure. Yeah. And if you've, if you've consciously said, well, I'm going to install this device because I want to save power, then you'll probably change your behaviour in the way you use electricity and then you probably actually will save power because you'll be Isn't turning lights power. off and, and being conscious of the power that you're using. Or unconscious of the power you're using, yeah. as it yeah. were. Um, I can't see a price anywhere on this website. Where did you find on the Power Panda site? If you go to buy now... And then it says, no, then it says, congratulations on deciding to buy one, yeah? Then it says our 365-day... Ah, uh, the best $497 you've, you've ever, ever spent. spent. Okay. And on the Yazoom site, it was being sold for 80% less well, of that? Well, it's saying 80% off, yeah, so... Can you not see on the site, does it not say? Well, it doesn't have the prices now. Oh, I see. How very convenient. But it does say... But some of the first comment was something about that, wasn't it? Yeah, so isn't... So one of the comments was, isn't the power panel $497, not $1,497? And, and the response to that was, hi, Justine, you're right. The power panda is $497, but the total saver residential, which is a different thing, is $1,497. So it doesn't actually clarify as to what's actually what being sold and what the price was. Um, so who knows? Anyway, but I, I spoke to this guy, and he just sounded deluded. Um, and but and it seemed but like he had, he'd had in sincere sincerely yes, deluded <laughs> sincerely deluded. It sounded like he'd had a small number of sales, and he was keen to um, to sort of pr promote the the benefits. I, I guess each each of those sales is sort of an individual situation, and uh, one of the testimonials on the site was from um, Pasco's the Jewelers. And I mean, they're not a residential um, residential 
environment. So they're they're going to be different from. Um, well, there's one here from, from a farm. House. Yeah, well, like in, but a farm is a is an industrial kind of. All right. Well, there we go then. Don't buy a power panda. Or if you do, try and do some objective testing for us and let us know how you get on. Perhaps we should um, see if he could give us some devices and we could test them for him. We'll install them in, in 50 houses and we won't tell them which one's which. Of course, you have to get a registered electrician to install one. Oh, there's one here on the side. He'll do it for us for free. He loves it so much, I'm sure. He'd be happy to help us test it. Yeah, but it, it certainly, um, it certainly sounds like a scam. Well, scam's probably a bit harsh. He's obviously not. Yeah, there's um, there was a similar a similar device in Australia that actually got banned by the um, the consumer complaints. Okay. Um, well, maybe we should do that and drop in a couple of complaints about it. What's he claiming? You can save up to twenty percent, thirty percent actually on the website. Oh, it was twenty on the Yazoo, wasn't it? Up to thirty percent on your next power bill. Oh well. So that's the Power Panda. Okay, and the Vampire Killing Kit. Oh, that's me. Susie. Uh, I just thought this was a funny, um, again, Halloween themed. So, Edward Mayer, Mayer, Vice President of Exhibits and Archives from Ripley's Believe It or Not Museums, arrived in New Zealand yesterday for a tour promoting Ripley's new book, Strikingly True. With him, he brought a suitcase full of treasures. But alas, New Zealand customs have confiscated two of his items. One of the items was a hairball cuffed up by a cow. The uh, other was one of the rarest pieces in his collection, a vampire killing kit from the 1840s. Sweet. Uh, apparently it had a pistol as part of it. So uh, it has been confiscated. If there are any vampires out for Halloween in New Zealand, it's the custom guy's fault. I like that that line, yeah. So the hairball is being shipped back to the States and uh, he's being allowed to collect his vampire kit on departure. Hmm. I would have thought that Customs would have had an exemption for silver bullets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. (coughs) No, they were quite right. Um, You need a license to possess a gun in New Zealand. If you don't have a New Zealand gun license. Well, silver bullets do just as much damage as normal bullets. It's just that they also (laughs) kill vampires. (laughs) No, no, wait, 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 wait. I thought silver bullets were werewolves. Silver weapons of any sort um, kill vampires. So if you had silver bullets, that would kill a vampire. But silver bullets is specifically how you kill a werewolf. And the werewolf has to die. So you shoot it with a silver bullet and dies. And if you can resurrect the human before he dies, I'll bring him, you know, resuscitate him. What? Why? <laughs> We've got someone giggling We have an the audience background. member who's laughing here, and we don't know why. <laughs> you could argue, Susan, that you don't know enough. <laughs> hey, what would you do right now? Werewolf comes through the window. And you'd be, oh, save me, Nathan, save me. I don't know what to do. We need Which those would be silver quite bullets. Given that we are on the second floor. Werewolves can leap that high. Oh. <laughs> Yes, yes, I do. I have a gun in my car. With but vampires are better for getting a stake through the heart, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I thought. I didn't realise you could... Yeah, that's now, what I thought. This is the problem, of course, is you run into the different um, different movies and different different books. Well, I base it? all my experience upon the Hammer horror movies from, right. from the 60s. For example, um, Blade, he uses... Um, bullets with silver nitrate. He also uses EDTA, which is hilarious because it's not blue. Oh, it's so funny. Sorry. Okay. It's, it's just a chemical. That's hilarious. Who are we talking about? Blade, the Blade. movie. 
Blade has little things of EDTA. Oh, what does EDTA? Uh, we use it in... Um... <laughs> anyway, he kills them with silver nitrate. So if you shoot them with silver nitrate, they die. Um, so stake through the heart, I think, is traditional. But if you have silver bullets or a silver that knife... That do it too. Um, you cut the head off and put <laughs> pennies over the eyes and turn it face down to stop them from resurrecting. Um, what if you can't find a penny? Well, you just have pennies. Don't you have pennies just no. in case? Oh, well, no. What do you <laughs> do when you kill a vampire? Our smallest coins now are, are 10 cents. I've got a whole box of them at home. Well, can I have two? No. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that'd, that'd, be, that'd be something, wouldn't it? I come to kill the vampire, and you've, I'm patting you've my given pockets, them all and out. I've given them all to Chrissy. Okay, you only want to EDTA. Um, ethylene diamine... No, hang on. Ethylene diamine tetraacetic acid. Right. EDTA. And it's and not blue. It's not blue. It's a colourless, water-soluble solid. It really makes colourless liquid. We use it in various molecular biology things, like in purifying DNA and stuff. What really struck me about that film was that I think they had little blue things of it, and I remember shouting at the screen, it's not blue! What's, why can't he have just put blue dye in it? Well, yeah, but that's not... And well, what does can, he use it for? We, well, uh, I believed it was part of his killing, killing vampires kit. I'm pretty sure it was part of... All right, anyway... anyway. That's, that's enough about vampires. It's not actually real. <laughs> oh, <laughs> real. <laughs> okay, and everyone's favourite segment now, Susie rants about the Ponsonby oh, News. Hang on, I'm not Do you have ready. an update for us? I do, I do. So last month I talked about um, the latest uh, health correspondent in the Ponsonby News, who was the real estate agent Deborah Kelland. Um, and she was saying you should use... Feed your dog bleach. Feed your dog bleach, yeah. So I wrote a response to the editor, which they have published again, and again I get myself on the same page as John Appleton. <laughs> oh, my God. This is going to be a regular thing I now. Hope be so. Half I have you and half this month. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. Um, so, because what I said was that um, I was concerned about her using MMS, so Miracle Mineral Solution. I explained what it was, that it was bleach, blah, blah, blah. and I said that it saddened me that someone would choose to discuss the health of their vet with a modern-day snake oil salesman over Facebook instead of consulting a vet. And this is because she she was taking a diet, um, a gallbladder liver cleanse diet, and that was what she actually wanted to administer to her pet. So she contacted via Facebook the man who was the who wrote that book, um, and he said he didn't think it was advisable go, uh, but to give them MMS instead. I don't even think he said that, was it? It wasn't that it, was, it wasn't advisable. He just couldn't see how it could be done. Yeah, couldn't see how it could be done. How you could okay. feed a yeah. dog. How you could feed the dog. Um, it's something like five days of olive oil and yeah, then some apple juice and some Epsom salts. Anyway, so when I blogged about this on Cyblogs, um, Alison Campbell said that she had... Uh, she recalled a paper in the Lancet or something um, about uh, this gallbladder liver cleanse. And it turns out that um, essentially it's just chemistry. So in your gut, the um, olive oil and everything gets turned into soap stones and you pass these little balls of soap. Um, <laughs> and so what she was excreting was not, um, was not her gallstones. It was just little balls of little whatever. Balls of of soap. So anyway, so I, but that's okay. So her response to me was that she was um, she got 
quite annoyed about me calling it snake oil. Um, oh, she would, yeah. And said that um, she's she's still going to use it. She's now treating a minor skin cancer spot on her face. She's treating her dog dog for a small melanoma. Um, she also says the beauty about MMS... Whoa, 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 whoa. She's treating her dog yeah. for a small melanoma. Yeah. Melanoma's cancer. Yeah. Okay. Keep yeah. reading. Because I said this was, you know, she shouldn't be using this. She should see her vet. She now says, I am using this with the um, blessing of my vet. I'm using it for this uh, cancer spot on my face. I'm using it for a melanoma on my dog. Um, that she, she wouldn't administer anything to her dog without checking it and f- trying it fully on herself. And that she suggests that I... Um, that. Try it for don't yourself. comment anymore until I've tried it for myself, absolutely. Um, but the one thing that she does say that's really funny, so she's talking about how um, it's really good for um, infections and stuff, and that, um, so she says, the beauty of MMS is that the good bacteria stay while the bad are eliminated. So I just thought this was hilarious, because for me, as a microbiologist, having something that would kill good bacteria, could kill bad bacteria, not good bacteria, I mean, this was really cool. So I emailed her saying, as a microbiologist, I'm fascinated by this. Could you please provide me some of your MMS and I'll try it in the lab against my good and bad bacteria? She hasn't replied. Oh, my oh what a surprise. So I'm quite disappointed about that. Um, but I might have to try it anyway. Um, yes, and then I found out that this, that the liver cleanse thing she was taking was actually that the gallstones weren't gallstones, they're the soapstones, and that some researchers had actually chemically... Um, looked at their contents and found that they were just this is just what happens when you put olive oil and these things together and I thought it was really funny so um, so I have written another response this month to say oh by the way gallstones weren't gallstones at all they were um, they were soap marvellous so yeah so you're almost like a regular com- columnist now they don't just publish you on the letters page alright now we've got our interview and we're here at the Skeptics Conference again with Stuart Landsborough of Stuart Land <coughs> of Stuart Landsborough <laughs> can, 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 I, can, I, can I say it for you Stuart Landsborough's puzzling world thank you puzzling world in Wanaka in Wanaka can you give us a bit of a quick introduction. What is the puzzling world and where have you come from in terms of scepticism? How did you get into scepticism? Hmm, certainly. Well, puzzling world is, is a, a business, a tourist business, a tourist attraction. Um, I started in 1973, so it's a long time ago. Um, and I started off as purely a maze. A maze is a walkthrough uh, puzzle. Uh, later on, I added a puzzle center and then puzzling things, then uh, a hologram exhibition, which meant that my theme went from maze to puzzles to puzzling. Um, and then later on, I discovered that uh, eccentricity is rather noticeable, and uh, so therefore I started building very eccentric buildings to catch people's eyes as they're either driving past our place or make them want to come in. So that's my business reason. Um, around about 1994, I decided to start my psychic challenge. Um, I got a, a, a piece of a scroll of paper, and uh, I, the middle piece of paper was cut out of it, and uh, um, that was to become my promissory note. And the promissory note was for $50,000, and uh, I decided to locate it somewhere within five kilometers of that place. Now, the, the other piece of the scroll, I actually 
uh, wrote what the challenge was all about and I put it into a cabinet and challenged people to uh, to challenge me to find the promissory note and if they won they would get $50,000 um, very quickly probably within six months I relocated it again to within instead of being five kilometers to being within a, a, a radius of 200 meters which is a, a, a lot <laughs> smaller area and not that many years ago from probably about four years ago I relocate, relocated it again to within a hundred meters of uh, where the promissory note scroll is in my in my business and this wasn't because the psychics were on to you no 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 it's just I want to make it easier for them uh, because over the years I've had uh, well I'll, I'll go back to this way uh, to to make the challenge, a psychic had to come up with a $1,000 bond. If they failed, it went to a charity. If they won, well, they would get the $1,000 back plus the $50,000. Um, none of them did win. So how many, how many psychics have taken the challenge? I've had seven serious um, challenges uh, of kinds. Now, when, when I say of kinds, uh, most of them uh, self-declared um, uh, psychics. One of them, though, was a, a dowser, a diviner, and he came along and he um, his wands sort of went up and down all over the place, uh, trying to locate where it was, and in the end he had to give up. So uh, there was uh, quite a number of different types of challenges. The amazing thing is that all the challengers, uh, because of the thousand dollars there, believed in what they were doing, because I don't think that uh, if they were a con artist they would actually try to come along and, and do it uh, and waste a thousand dollars so it's quite amazing yeah um, well it's just amazing that they actually have that level of belief that they'll put up a thousand dollars it is uh, I must say that um, up till now I have never kept that thousand dollars I've always given it back to them because the whole thing was that being a, a public entertainment if I didn't have that thousand dollar bond uh, I could have tens of thousands of people trying to accept my challenge uh, which would mean I'd be doing it all day long, every day, and eventually somebody would get um, fairly close to the location of it. And then, of course, this brings up the point is uh, so many people have said to me, um, have some people ever got close? Now, I say, well, what do you mean by close? Do you mean a centimetre, a metre, 10 metres, 20 metres, 50 metres? How close does a psychic have to get before they actually do it? And I say, in fact, they've got to get it or not get it. They fail if they don't get it exactly. Are you ever worried by the, um, I guess, the clever hands effect? You, in that uh, you're, you're, you might unconsciously be giving them clues as to where uh, it no, is? No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm not trained at sort of uh, being a skeptic on this thing, but I've tried to make up my own rules. Um, and the first rule was that uh, um, these people who are doing the challenge there, they can have a half an hour consultation with me um, before we went out to, and then they tried to locate it. Now the consultation was really that they could actually ask me verbally questions and I would um, answer them through my head, of course. Now, um, two things, first of all, one of my conditions was that they were actually facing away from me at the time, so they couldn't actually see my body language. Um, but, uh, of course, a lot of people say to me, oh, well, how do we know you're actually um, answering them back and you're doing it properly? I said, well, none of my challenges, none of them have actually ever questioned when they failed my honesty. Uh, and indeed, I tell them that... Well, uh, hell, they're psychics. They should know whether you're telling Well, that's what <laughs> I was about to come to that too. Yeah. I was just about to ask something very, very similar. 
I'm about 99% sure that if I were able to set the rules, that I could find the note. I wouldn't, of course, because uh, that would just be mean. But, um, for example, Darren Brown uh, has done a couple of specials recently where he's just had someone's hand on his shoulder and they've led him around the city and he's managed to find whatever it is he's hidden. And of course, he's using the idiomotor effect, um, the unconscious movements. Um, so I assume you've got some rules in place to, to prevent that sort of thing from being done. I, you, I wouldn't be able to lead you around and point at the... Uh, absolutely at the not. Um, when they have finished with their half an hour with me, I then set them free, off they go, and they can have a half an hour wandering around the region. Um, uh, and then when they come back to me, they tell me where it is. Uh, so I don't actually go with them. A lot of sort of people who believe in psychics, well, you're not giving them very much chance, are you? I was like a needle in a haystack finding one of those. And uh, it's actually quite easy to find a needle in a haystack, really, isn't it? If you've got the right tools. Well, if you've got the right tools, or if you just put the whole haystack in a bath of water, and bit by bit you put, uh, put handfuls in there, eventually the needle's going to come through and float to the no float float to the bottom. Float to the yeah. bottom, yeah. Well, that's uh, <laughs> upside down, yeah. But also, you know, these people make a living out of contacting the dead and things like that. I would have thought of all the dead people around. One of them would have seen us. They're very good at finding needles in haystacks. Yeah, I don't know why they really want to, do they? Why would dead people really want to tell things like that? No, they're more interested in, I'm having a great time in heaven, and uh, I really miss you. All you want to know is, where's the treasure? So, Stuart, were you aware of the James Randi challenge when you invented this challenge of your own? No, not at the time. I I wasn't aware of him, no. Would have been around the same time, I think. What? what? 1994. So that's actually around about when James Randi first started doing that with a large sum of money. When I did it... um, it was with a complete ignorance of anything else of this sort of thing going around the world there. I just did it because I felt it was time that somebody actually tried to do something to uh, stop, well not stop, but anyhow, uh, give, an, give another idea of what, is, what these people are all talking about and it's Count, actually not true. Counteractor, that's the word I'm going for, yes. Actually, there's quite a bit more about those seven challenges. Um, one, of them, one of them was actually a woman that I didn't accept or an eighth challenge I didn't accept because she said she was a, a ni- rather nice young lady uh, in the mid twenties with a uh, with a, a child, and uh, she said, "Oh, I'd like to take up the challenge, but uh, you'll have to put your hands on my bare breasts." I was standing in the middle of the shop there, and I, I my mind was racing there, and I was thinking, uh, um, "What are the ramifications if she doesn't win?" <laughs> so I had to I had to to miss it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another one too about which was interesting because um, I got sidetracked there. Uh, there was one challenger who um, failed as usual, as they all do. And I always show people where the, the promissory note is located uh, once they fail to prove it exists. And then, of course, I relocate it to another place. But um, when she failed, um, I strolled up to my house, which is very close to the maze. And I took her in and, and, and introduced her t- to my partner of that time, wife now. And uh, I said to my partner, um, I've just bring this lady in to show her where the promissory lo- uh, note is located. And I, and I said, and it's in the house. And my wife said, it is not in the house. I've been living with you for two years. I have cleaned every nook and cranny. I've sorted everything out. It is not in the house. 
And I said, uh, well, I'm, it is in the house. And so we, I, we took her up the stairs and up to the toilet. And there I took the lid off the cistern of the toilet. And in, inside was a little jam jar sealed. And every time the toilet had been flushing for the last two years, it had been going down and up, down and up. <laughs> So my wife proved that she wasn't as good a house cleaner as she thought she was. So tell us about your um, interactions with uh, the sensing murders people. Oh, them, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, um, uh, two, there's two sort of stories, first of all. I, I actually became quite interested in um, watching one of the sensing murders programs, um, which uh, the TV had sort of promoted as, a, as the program that would make skeptics think again. And so I thought, well, I'd better have a look at it because it must be pretty good. And, and when I actually uh, looked at it I, I, I first time, it, it looked pretty good, but there was a lot of glaring mistakes. And fortunately, I taped it and I, I looked at it again and again and again. And each time, lots more mistakes came out and lots of lies, uh, I don't know if I should say lies, but deceits, is that the same thing? But I say lies. Lies, yeah. Just say bullshit. Yeah, bullshit, all that stuff, yeah. Uh, and it had untruths or uh, distortions and, and mistakes by the psychics, but also there was a massive amount of, of clues given by those around, uh, very obvious clues. And uh, so, in, uh, in fact, I got to one point that was so bad that I, I, I watched it for about 20 times and I th found in a, a period of 60 seconds 30 different instances of the psychic either making a mistake, um, the detective who was doing the interviewing, uh, giving leading questions or giving information. The driver of the car they were in is actually sort of um, telling information by slowing the car and slowing it, slowing it, stopping it, even turning the car around, never being asked to by the psychic. So I mean, that gives a lot of information if the car actually stops and turns around. Um, but that, that's just one thing there. I also went to a, a, a Kelvin Cruikshank uh, sensing murder psychic uh, show in Wanaka uh, with my wife and uh, uh, we kind of gulped at the $75 you have to pay to go to it. Um, okay, I think it was sort of $7 goes as a, as, a, as a commission for the ticket people but the rest, it meant that, that Kelvin would make something like $10,000 clear for an evening's work after expenses. And it hurts, but I, I want, people keep on saying that uh, skeptics are closed-minded and they should, and, and so I thought, well, I'll go along and be open-minded and, and have a look at his show. It was appallingly bad. I would say 80% of, of what he said or guessed or stated was wrong. There was about, probably about 10% that was vaguely right, and, uh, uh, and probably about 10% was of his hot reading episode, which was quite obvious, and hot reading, of course, is uh, when he knows all about it beforehand. But, but my wife and I, we went in there, we sat right in the middle of the audience, um, and that said we weren't chosen, and uh, all of a sudden, um, right at the start of the show, he, he got a microphone to be handed to my wife in the middle, and he said, we'll come back to you later on. And uh, of course, um, also he had a whiteboard on the stage and uh, while he was interviewing lots of other people, he kept on coming back to my wife and, uh, and drawing little bits and pieces on the whiteboard like a tree and branches. And he said now, and they put little stars on the branches and he said, all of these people are, uh, all, these, all these stars are people that are um, related to you or, or associated or, or, or concern you. Um, but I'll come back to you later on, he said. And this was really making my wife wonder because 
she's one of the luckiest people in the world. She's never had anybody important to her die. Even her parents are still alive. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyhow, um, finally, just towards the intermission at the middle of the show, they finally came back to my wife and he um, asked her four questions and each one of them was wrong. Uh, and, uh, and yet it was obviously supposed to be the hot reading episode of the night. For instance, he, he asked her a person's name, and normally when they ask a person's name, they use something like a Mary or a John or a J or an M. Uh, he actually asked my wife, uh, and he gave two names, and they weren't common names, first name and a second name, and she didn't recognize it at all. And what was going on there? And it, it seemed obvious it was a hot reading thing, but something had gone terribly wrong. But, <laughs> any, but anyhow, he, he then um, got a bit upset with this and uh, passed the microphone. He said, pass it over to the man beside you. And of course it was me. <laughs> and, and, and actually there's about 200 people in, in the hall and it was a local hall, local crowd. And with that, a whole ripple murmur went around the hall because they, most of them recognized me and uh, knew who I was. And of course this was a, a battle between Kelvin and me. And he had no idea. Uh, well, I, I, we were wondering if he surely he had to, because who would ch choose us right in the middle? But I'll, um, there's a reason for this, and I'll get back to it later on. And uh, anyhow, he chose me. And actually, one of his questions was um, absolutely right, um, or statement, should I say. He said, both your parents are dead. Well, um, looking at me from there, uh, my parents are both, if they were alive today, they would be approaching 100 years of age. So you got it right. You got it, got it right, didn't that's you? Very so, I mean, that's, that's very and the, and the crowd applauded. But anyhow, he got some stuff wrong, and so finally he he moved off from me, and he looked obviously very, very unhappy about it. And uh, so he said, "Right, we'll take a break." He said, and as he said that, I said, "Look, Kelvin," and I shouted this out, to, and I said, "Kelvin, I, there's not a lot you've got right there, is there?" And uh, uh, he looked at me and stormed off. And anyhow. Uh, the break was finished, he came back on, he walked onto the middle of the stage, he looked at me and he said, I know who you are, you're the man from the puzzle place. That's one place I'm never going to go to. <laughs> <laughs> and I just spent, 50, uh, spent $75 coming to his show, but he wasn't going to spend $12 coming to mine. <laughs> um, so, but it was fun. But the, the, the crux of it was though, of course, is that um, uh, right at the end of the show, he went to a woman at the back of the hall and, and he got everything right with her. But immediately, oh, I forgot to tell you that, of course, on the stage was this huge screen. Um, and uh, every time he interviewed somebody, uh, you could see the person's head and shoulders on the whole screen. So you could see what's going on. But he went to the last lady and, and there she was and her curly, old lady, curly hair, red top. And my wife said to me, she's got a red top on like me and she's got curly hair. And I looked around the whole hall, the hall and there was only three people with red tops on and one of them was a blonde. Uh, and the questions he asked this other woman were quite amazing. You've just had a lump removed from the side of your nose. Um, you go to the gym. Uh, in your car, you've got a little wobbly dog uh, on the, you know, little wobbly dogs inside cars there. And she said, no, actually, it's in my son's car. So we have to assume that uh, she was dropped off by her son and the, the Kelvin's mate had been out there and he just asked her a few questions. But I mean, what's, what spirit up there would actually 
make statements like you've got a, a, a lump removed from your nose and things like that. So he'd, he'd, he'd actually he'd actually used all of his good ones on my wife. And, and that was uh, all he had left. <laughs> that was all he had left. But interesting enough, I'd actually seen, right at the start of the show while we were waiting, I'd, I'd looked up at the balcony, which was nobody up there apart from some lighting technicians, except for one other person, and he was just staring down at my wife, and staring and staring and staring, and I know my wife's beautiful uh, to me, and, um, and, uh, and, but he didn't even notice me looking at him. And it was only later on when we looked at the woman who um, was the real target, and, and she was actually sitting under the balcony where he was. So this uh, spy who was sitting on the balcony couldn't see this woman under the, under the uh, balcony, and he could only see my wife, so he had to assume she was the right one for the hot reading. But that, that's a, it was a wonderful show, and, but I, I really felt at times I was threatened by the audience for actually speaking up. That's awesome. And uh, just to recap, you said $12, which seems very, very reasonable to me. Well, that's a few years ago. Uh, look, I'm retired now. It's a bit of a tough thing. Um, I think it's $15 now. $15, which still seems very reasonable for a... For a it is. It's a, a couple of hours of entertainment, yeah. And some fun puzzles and mazes. Well, one great big giant maze, which um, is a, th a three-dimensional walk-through maze, a huge puzzle centre for people who can sit down and try puzzles and uh, while they're having coffee and cakes and things like that. And then there's uh, quite a number of, of rooms of illusions, uh, uh, illusory rooms. Each, each room is an illusion in its own right. Um, makes it different from a kind of a science museum where they, you go in and have lots of displays and uh, um, it's... It's a totally different theme from anywhere else in the world. As a maze enthusiast, I have actually been many years ago on one of my first holidays to New Zealand, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank it's you. made me, it's reminded me that I need to go back and give my daughter is now a maze enthusiast. I should take her along too. Well, I'm, I think we're probably on about our third generation now of people since 1973. So uh, the good thing is that while people are breeding, we still have customers. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us on the cusp and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. And wrapping up the episode, Craig, you've got a quote for us. All right, here's a quote. Books won't stay banned. They won't burn. Ideas won't go to jail. In the long run of history, the censor and the inquisitor have always lost. The only weapon against bad ideas is better ideas. Alfred Whitney Griswold. Is he a professor? Because that'd be really funny if you're into Minecraft at all. If anyone knows what I'm talking about, give me a high five or a, a like or something. Professor Griswold. Okay. Uh, and the word of the day, I was actually thinking about Halloween, I was going to use Satanophany, which is an appearance of the devil, but I decided that this one's funnier. Uh, today's word is scatomancy. Does anybody want to tell me what scatomancy is? Divination by studying excrement. <laughs> and you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary <laughs> Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us a message or feedback, check out the Contact Us form on the website, thecusp.org.nz. Yeah.